Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Thanksgiving always falls towards the end of Indigenous History Month. And in recent years, there have been efforts to rethink this holiday and its history. From the Mayflower's landing to the meal shared by English settlers and the Wampanoag people. When I think about Thanksgiving, I always think about past practices and how I was taught as a child. And I'm loving that in education today, we are changing the narrative and we are rewriting how we are teaching about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to Native people could mean many different things. Um, Some tribes themselves, their ancestors were affected by the colonizing events of the holiday of what we now consider Thanksgiving. Um, So some people see the holiday differently. That was Sam Tondro, Director of Curriculum and Instruction with the Mohegan Tribe. She and representatives from Connecticut's four other recognized tribes collaborated on curricula focused on this region and in part the history behind this holiday. Later this hour, we'll hear more about that collaboration and how Sam views this holiday. But first, Chris Newell recently wrote a book for children all about the real story of Thanksgiving. He's a Connecticut-based educator and member of the Passamaquoddy tribe. If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving is written for grades level two through five, but can be helpful for readers of all ages. It was the first in Scholastic's revival of its 70s era, If You Lived During series. And joining us now to discuss is Chris Newell himself, who is also the co-founder and director of education for the Okanagan Educational Initiative, which is a majority Native-owned educational consultancy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris, and welcome back to where we live. Thank you so much. And it's a pleasure to be back here with you all. And for our listeners, let us know if you have any questions about the real story of Thanksgiving. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Chris, last time you were on the show, we basically started the conversation by gushing over what an amazing sunrise we had that day. And I'm happy to say that today I'm seeing that same amazing sunrise, which I think is a is a really good sign for this chat. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, um, welcoming the sun is part of uh, the culture of Wabanaki peoples and uh, something that uh, is supposed to be built into our uh, daily activity. And uh, anytime you get a beautiful day, um, it is a blessing. Absolutely. And we're definitely taking that blessing here today. And speaking of a different kind of beginning, would love for you to start this conversation by reading the first three introduction paragraphs of your book. Absolutely. The first Thanksgiving has become a foundational story of how America came to be. The Mayflower landing in Plymouth in 1620 and the later feast in 1621 are taught as a turning point in the creation of a new country. However, 
the holiday we celebrate today does not have any real connection to the Mayflower's landing. In fact, the story that links them was not created until 200 years later. Nevertheless, it is important to understand the events of this critical landing. The creation of the English settlement at Patuxet, otherwise known as Plymouth, established a foothold in the region for coloniz English colonization. The country we know as the United States is based largely on the culture and history of colonists who arrived from England. They came to settle and control territory and to harvest the vast resources of the American continent to gain wealth. Later, 13 English colonies on the eastern coast banded together as Americans, leading to historical events such as the American Revolution and the establishment of the U.S. Constitution. Those events are only part of the story. Before the arrival of any Europeans, native peoples lived in America by the millions. Entire nations of people connected by land, kinship, language, and culture existed on the continent for more than 12,000 years. The story of the Mayflower as a foundational myth of the country's beginning erases the harsh realities of disease and aggression experienced by native peoples as Europeans settled their colonies in America. It also erases the current existence of native peoples who live in the United States today. The Mayflower landing is an important piece of history that needs exploration, but in its exploration, all perspectives should be sought. The story of the Mayflower landing is different depending on who the storyteller, on whether the storyteller viewed the events from the boat or from the shore. And so, Chris, as we continue to, to make this exploration, you know, each sentence and each word that you've just read does so much to reframe this story. And as the Smithsonian Magazine points out, controversial subjects such as the deadly disease epidemic known as the Great Dying, slavery, and loss of land associated with European contact are carefully clarified. So, Chris, can you walk us through sort of the priorities that guided your process for this book, you know, when you were, when you were planning it? What was going through your mind? Um, yeah, well, you know, growing up in my community, Madokniguk, uh, we were not taught the first Thanksgiving narrative. I mean, we celebrated the Thanksgiving holiday. It was a day off. It was a national holiday. Uh, all of our families would get together for, a, you know, a feast, um, you know, much resemblant of the American Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, but we were not taught the pilgrim narrative. Um, and uh, it wasn't something I really ran into until I left the reservation and started going to high school off the reservation that I realized that America taught this narrative um, as, you know, basically the, the beginning of America. Um, and that really, you know, you know, from my perspective, even at that age, um, it felt really off, right? You know, because it, it, I'm like, I mean, I know my ancestors have been living in what is uh, the Dawnland for 12,000 plus years. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like when you teach the pilgrim narrative, you start the time clock with the arrival of the, uh, uh, the Mayflower in 1620, as if nothing happened before. Um, and so for me, it, you know, it was a personal journey on, on my part, but also for Wampanoag people, I mean, you got to understand I'm Passamaquoddy, I'm not Wampanoag. So this is not my history. Uh, it's just history that I've been working with for a, quite a long time. 
Um, for Wampanoag people, they experienced something uh, even uh, more drastic in that the Pilgrim narrative, what it does is it tends to put them in the past tense. And so in 2023, it is not uncommon for a Wampanoag person to experience meeting a new person, a non-native person, and for them to be surprised that the Wampanoag person is alive, that they're even here. Um, that's the level of uh, education that the average American often has as a result of these foundational myths. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a frustrating experience for Wampanoag people to go through, even in their own homelands, and have to experience that. And I truly wanted to make, uh, you know, a, create a book that was not um, to please Scholastic, but I was thinking of all of my Wampanoag friends and relatives who experienced that, I, and this is their history, and I wanted to be very careful with it, um, but I also wanted to put them back into the present um, and tell some real truths so that, um, you know, the, the silly questions that they sometimes get, uh, you know, that, you know, we think would be basic knowledge, um, they wouldn't get any more because their children uh, would have this resource and would have those uh, questions already answered prior. So, you know, children reading this book tend to be a little bit more educated than their parents and their grandparents uh, because this has been taught in a certain way since the 19th century. And that's one of the things I was hoping to uh, help undo. And we appreciate you making that clarification, too, because it's important to recognize that there are so many different voices with this storytelling. And and speaking of education and the function that this book can play, we wanted to let Mohegan member and director of curriculum Sam Tondro shout out your book and tell us why she uses it in the classroom in her own words. So let's take a listen here. I've worked with a lot of school districts, and I recommend Chris Newell's book for many reasons. I have so many thoughts. Um, I'll share a few, um, but I really like how he took the approach of sharing topics such as language, life ways of the Wampanoag people in the 1600s, because the perspectives of our native peoples in books in the classroom are missing. By learning from the Wampanoag people, we're learning from the group of people and from a group of people that are still thriving in communities today. Winona Nelson, the illustrator, did such an amazing job creating accurate portrayals of what Northeast Woodland area tribes would look like. Um, more specifically, the homes that we lived in, the garb that we wore, and the involvement of children. I really liked the involvement of children throughout the book, and it's very inspirational for our tribal communities. Um, I also like too how he brought into a younger age group the topics of alliances, challenges, and misconceptions into the classroom because we can really teach our students in a deeper perspective um, at a younger age. Chris would love to hear your response to what Sam has to say here and especially the collaboration you did with the book's illustrator, Winona Nelson. Yeah, I, I love Sam's words. And, uh, you know, Sam, if you're listening, thank you for those. Um, and, uh, you know, first I'll, I'll talk about Winona, um, the illustrator. She's Leech Lake Band Ojibwe. Um, and I agree uh, with, with Sam's assertion that she did her homework when it comes to, I mean, as an Ojibwe person, she is not, she's a Great Lakes tribe. 
Um, she's not from this region either. And, and she did her homework uh, as far as depicting um, what Native peoples, you know, at the time period uh, looked like, dressed like, um, to the point where even in another review by Dr. Debbie Reese, uh, she points out very wisely that all of the Native people have shoes on. They all have moccasins on. They all have shoes on. Their feet are covered, where typically in children's picture books, Native peoples are depicted without shoes. And that's one of uh, Debbie Reese's, um, you know, biggest uh, qualms about uh, depictions about Native people. So I appreciate that, you know, she sees, you know, what I was going for um, uh, and what Winona was going for in that we were trying to create a, a resource that, you know, would work not just for children, but also for teachers, um, you know, especially, you know, as I had teachers in mind as an audience and um, that, uh, you know, the story delves a little bit deeper, uh, right? It, it expands the lens beyond uh, the feast itself uh, to what happened before and what happened after. And that is a valuable tool for a lot of people. Well, and it's clear that there was so much research behind your work here with the book. And can you talk about also the process that you worked alongside a representative of the Wampanoag tribe to make sure that this is all accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. So I actually began with this material when I worked at the Pequot Museum. Um, I was the head of education there. And, uh, you know, there's a, a common, you know, misconception sometimes uh, that the modern day Thanksgiving holiday uh, has to do with the Pequot massacre. And that comes from an actual piece of history where um, after the Pequot massacre in 1637, uh, the governor of the Mass Bay Colony, John Winthrop, would declare what was called an English day of Thanksgiving, um, which was a day of prayer and fasting in celebration of the massacre of the Pequots. And so when I started working with this material, it was really because at the Pequot Museum, we had a lot of people confused, you know, between the, the Mayflower Landing and the Pequot massacre and the Thanksgiving holiday. So I created um, a, a educational program for students called demystifying Thanksgiving. Um, and in the research for that, that's where I learned about Sarah Josepha Hale uh, and the creation of the narrative, uh, you know, by fiction writers, essentially uh, in the 1800s and Alexander Young's footnote that uh, first identified uh, the feast as the quote unquote first Thanksgiving. That's the first time it was ever done. It was in 1841. Um, so this was years of research that I had done and I presented this material for a few years at the, the Pequot Museum. Um, but even then, uh, you know, when it came time to writing the book, um, I wanted to make sure to source from tribal sources. And so Linda Coombs, uh, who you mentioned as, as my subject matter expert, uh, is uh, a, a Quina Wampanoag elder and uh, an expert. And she has a new book uh, called Colonization and the Wampanoag Story that's out uh, right now, by the way. I'm just plugging that for her. I encourage you all to get it uh, because she is, you know, exactly what I wanted in that she's a hard grader. So in every uh, edit, um, you know, she had very uh, specifics that she wanted to include in there, um, you know, to make sure that we were indigenizing the story. And some of the sources I chose were things like the speech from Frank Wonsetta James, uh, who in 1970 uh, was invited to the 350th anniversary of the Mayflower Landing, uh, a Wampanoag person, uh, a historian. 
Um, and he had written a speech that included a whole lot of truth uh, that was not being talked about at the time uh, and uh, was actually um, censored. He was not allowed to give his speech in Plymouth uh, because it disrupted the Pilgrim narrative so badly. So I sourced a lot of things from uh, Wampanoag sources, um, Linda Coombs being one, uh, but also Frank Wonsada James' uh, um, speech, uh, his censored speech from 1970. So I want to get back to the book in a little bit, but you mentioned the program demystifying, uh, demystifying Thanksgiving, which allowed you to encounter a, a very wide range of student and teacher responses to this content. So you just mentioned a few of them, but we'll love to sort of dig a little deeper about, you know, what were some of the most common questions or misperceptions that you were able to identify through that experience? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it was a great testing ground for for this material. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a uh, before this uh, project, I had not authored any books, um, you know, or, or any, you know, worked in uh, children's books or anything like that. Um, you know, so working with this material for years with Demystifying Thanksgiving, I got to see, um, you know, the students' uh, reaction to the material as well as their teachers. Um, and both of those things really informed, you know, the, the method I took to writing and, and the audience that I was writing to. Um, because what I was seeing was the teachers were just as ignorant of this history as the students were and were asking a lot of the same questions. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, a lot of times when I brought up the the um, uh, the subject of Sarah Josepha Hale, um, you know, we would end up in a discussion of her, and uh, you know, she's you know uh, not a perfect person, but she's definitely somebody that America should know a little bit more about because she's the first woman to um, uh, be the editor of a large publication, um, Godie's Ladies Book, and she also wrote a little ditty. Uh, that was known uh, at the time as Mary Had a Lamb, uh, which we all know today as Mary Had a Little Lamb. Um, you know, so it brings even histories like that, that, uh, you know, are, are non-Native histories even uh, to light that have been hidden over all this time. And I found interest uh, from the students and from the teachers on both sides of it, you know, and, and really the reaction was a, a bit of surprise uh, that uh, how much they didn't know, um, you know, uh, up to that point and leaving the experience of uh, demystifying Thanksgiving, um, they were often excited about how much they learned. And so I definitely want to ask you in a little bit about teacher and student responses to the book, but I want to talk about first, too, that this was the first in Scholastics revisiting their If You Lived during series. And so this sort of served as an update of one of those books originally published in the 70s. So can you tell us about that process and, and also give us an idea of the title, because it was really important for you to do away with the word first Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. I uh, say, quote, unquote, first Thanksgiving for a lot of reasons, and that I go over it in the book very well. Um, you know, when it came to um, uh, uh, choosing the title, um, that was one of the things I wanted to change. And when it came to this book, um, you know, being the first one in involved in the rewrite of the series, which came out in the 70s, and initially all of the books were written by one author. Uh, and this time around, Scholastic is looking to have all of these books written by a diverse set of authors. And so that was one of the differences uh, between this. 
Now, the original book, If You Live During the First Thanksgiving, um, you know, actually, I had never seen a copy of it. And uh, the editor, uh, Katie Height, who I from Scholastic that I work with very well, uh, you know, and I love, um, you know, the way her voice, you know, uh, advocated for my voice to, you know, make sure to come through clearly in the book. Um, she would not even send me uh, a, a PDF copy of the original book because she was actually a bit ashamed about how it was written, how one-sided it was, and didn't want a copy uh, or, you know, anything that would resemble something like that. Uh, you know, she wanted something that was much more balanced, um, in, you know, from the get-go. And so she didn't even send me um, an initial copy. She did send me some from If You Lived During the American Revolution, which she felt a little bit more comfortable about. Um, you know, so I, at least I got an idea of how the book goes because this series, the way it's written, it's not chapters necessarily. They're all questions. Every chapter is a question. Um, so there's uh, um, uh, 31 questions in the book. Um, and a student can basically go to the table of contents if they want to look up specific information, look for a certain question, and then go to that page and find the information that they want, a few paragraphs about it, much like the introduction. Um, changing the name, you know, uh, to the Plymouth Thanksgiving and then choosing the spelling. Uh, I'm going to go into that a little bit, too. Um, I wanted to get rid of that notion that uh, the feast in 1621 uh, was the first Thanksgiving, because once again, that was not a, a, a title given to that particular feast until 1841 when Alexander Young uh, found uh, a Plymouth plantation and Mort's relation and wrote about it. Uh, and in a photo, in a footnote, um, called uh, in, uh, in in citing a letter from Edward Winslow that had about a paragraph about it. And that's how unremarkable the feast was to the English, by the way. They only wrote about a paragraph about it. Um, he would call it the the first Thanksgiving because in the 1800s they were celebrating um, harvest feasts that they were calling Thanksgivings at the time. Um, so he equated the two, and from then on, it became known as the first Thanksgiving. Um, but that is a mistake of history, as I call out in the book. Um, and that's something that I didn't want future um, students, you know, to uh, realize as they get into college. Because that's a lot of times they, they go through this material in elementary school, even in high school, calling it the first Thanksgiving. And then they'll run into a historian in college um, who would teach them something different. And oftentimes it's it's a very jarring experience for them. And I didn't want young students to experience that anymore. And so that was one of my biggest motivations for changing the title and getting rid of first Thanksgiving. Um, choosing the Plymouth spelling, P-L-I-M-O-T-H. Um, that is a learning experience in and of itself. Even, even before the book came out, I was getting one star ratings uh, on Amazon, um, just on the preview because uh, of the spelling. You, know, you didn't spell Plymouth right because they're used to the the, the modern day spelling of P-L-Y-M-O-U-T-H. And, um, you know, Americans just don't sit there and think, why don't we pronounce it Plymouth, which is how it is spelled uh, under English spelling rules. And that's the reason why is because the English in 1620 were pronouncing it Plymouth. Uh, and there are various spellings. William Bradford used uh, one, you know, this is one of William Bradford's spellings uh, who led um, uh, the Plymouth Plantation. And so uh, they spelled phonetically, they spelled how it sound. And so there's multiple spellings of Plymouth. And, um, you know, in the book, you end up learning that that the English language was not standardized in the 1600s like it is today. We didn't have spelling rules, all of those other things. And so there are multiple spellings. And so there is no one correct spelling of Plymouth if you're talking about history from the 1600s. 
Well, now I'm not going to be able to unhear Plymouth now. So you've been listening <laughs> You've been listening to Chris Newell. He's a member of the Passamaquoddy tribe and the author of this classic children's book, If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving. Coming up, we'll address several misconceptions around this holiday. Let us know if you have any questions about this. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're discussing the real history of Thanksgiving and how that's being reframed. Back with us to discuss his book for children, If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving, is Chris Newell. He's a co-founder and director of education for the Aquamock Educational Initiative and a member of the Passamaquoddy tribe. So, Chris, we were just talking earlier about several misconceptions and and misunderstandings that happen throughout history. Can you elaborate on how the misunderstanding came to be in terms of where this actually happened? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm wondering if you're talking about um, uh, the conception of, of where the first, where a, a first Thanksgiving might have happened, because it actually, there's multi- more than one place than Plymouth. Yes. Um, yes. Okay, good. That's what I was hoping you were asking about. So, um, yeah, and now, uh, when I, as I go into the book, um, you know, the creation of the Thanksgiving holiday, you know, first, uh, you know, there's a couple of uh, declaration or proclamations of Thanksgiving um, by George Washington and, and a few other presidents that were really more about days of prayer. But the, the you know, the modern day Thanksgiving was first proclaimed uh, by uh, uh, President uh, Abraham Lincoln. And one of the reasons that he did that was it, it was at a time in history where the Civil War was going on. Um, now, at the time, the Civil War, had, the tide had turned and the North was going to win. It, that that was, you know, it was um, pretty much, you know, that was the way it was going to go. And so as president, 
he was wondering how do we pull uh you know a country back together that has just been killing itself um and so creating a foundational myth and uh you know taking uh you know uh sarah josepha hill's suggestion of uh, creating a national holiday that would celebrate the pilgrim myth um of a foundational story happening uh was one of the ways to do that now um, one of the things that having uh, the myth happen in Massachusetts does is that it practically erases the Virginia colony, which predates uh, everything that happened in Massachusetts. And the English did have days of Thanksgiving, uh, English days of prayer in um, uh, Virginia uh, in as early as 1609, you know, which is 11 uh, or 12 years before the feast that happened uh, in Massachusetts. However, uh, in, in the decision making of where uh, declaring the first Thanksgiving was going to happen, was going to be told uh, had happened, uh, it could not happen in the South. Uh, politically, you know, as a result of the Civil War. Therefore, um, the Plymouth location was chosen, uh, you know, to, to uh, serve as that uh, foundational myth because it was in the North. Um, and that's, you know, it, it's in a way a, a, a lot of propaganda, you know, it, it, and it does erase. Uh, I, I know people from Virginia that get frustrated uh, about how the Pilgrim narrative erases just even the existence of the Virginia colony, which was uh, actually where the Mayflower was intended to go, um, uh, you know, and so that that's one of the things that happens. And also, there's even recent um, uh, knowledge about English Thanksgiving happening in what is now the state of Maine prior to 1621. Um, you know, so those are some of the things that I was trying to help um, you know, clear up for people or uh, get them past, you know, because uh, sometimes when we first something, um, sometimes we forget all else. And that's essentially what happened by firsting uh, the uh, the feast that happened in, in Massachusetts over all else. Um, we ended up uh, uh, erasing a whole lot of history with that uh, with that process. Well, and I love that you mentioned that the word firsting because you know earlier we were also talking about the importance of language, like the like the the spelling of of Plymouth, and and now talking about the idea of Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, when we really sit down and think about what it means to settle a piece of land, and through implication, its indigenous inhabitants, there's also this concept of improvement. And so you can't see this, but I just did air quotes. But you kept this word in quotation marks in the book. So can you talk about why you did that? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, the English that arrived had a, uh, you know, basically a, a religious belief that the land, you know, land itself was meant for human being, human beings to what they called improve. Now, what when they said improvement, what they meant was, you know, cutting down all the trees, creating farmland, building fences, creating permanent uh, residences, you know, on, on pieces of property, people would own property, they would work that piece of land. Um, and so that was the improvement, they would work that piece of land, and they would make their their living that way. Um, so that was to them was improvement of the land, um, which is uh, uh, um, definitely the other side of the coin of the way native people took care of the land, which was stewardship. Um, by stewarding the natural landscape, uh, they were able to get everything they needed from nature, and therefore there was no need to alter um, the landscape through what, you know, quote, unquote, improvement. 
Um, so that's what the English meant is they, they literally meant that we're going to come onto the land and we're going to change the entire landscape to suit our needs as human beings in however way we prescribe. And um, that concept still lives in America. You know, I, I, um, I once got a little bit of uh, flack from one of the um, copy editors for uh, mentioning that uh, the U.S. culture is largely based off of English colonists. Well, one of the first clues of that is that we're speaking in the English language. Another clue of that is that this concept of uh, land improvement still exists. We just use a different word today, and that is the word development. When we say we're going to create a development, we mean this the exact same thing. We're going to destroy the ability of that of a piece of properties, uh, you know, natural uh, ability to provide for us if we stewarded that land versus uh, developing it. And so in earlier, you mentioned, so the Europeans came over on the Mayflower, but and we, that's something that we often hear about. But can you tell us about this myth? Because there wasn't just one ship. No, there wasn't. And that's that's another thing that gets taken out of, uh, you know, the story oftentimes. Um, you know, people talk about just the arrival of the Mayflower, but when it comes to the journey, there was actually two ships that were involved and the passenger ship that the, uh, you know, the people that would eventually be known as the Pilgrims uh, initially left on was called the Speedwell. So it was a two ship voyage. The Mayflower was basically the cargo ship. Uh, and it was the Mayflower of London, by the way. There were multiple Mayflowers, uh, you know, more than 20 uh, written during the time of uh, King Charles. And um, uh, so, you know, there's uh, a number of Mayflowers. This was the Mayflower of London and then the Speedwell, which was the passenger ship. However, um, they left twice uh, prior to their uh, to to their, uh, you know, their successful journey, which was the third journey. And in both those leavings, the Speedwell had sprung a leak. Now, there's debate over whether this was sabotage or whether it just happened, you know, by by providence, just by accident or whatever. But both times the Speedwell sprung a leak to the point where they had to return. And that's one of the reasons why the Mayflower, when it did leave, it left months late. And when it arrived in what is now Plymouth, it was already around um, Thanksgiving, around, around the end of November. And they were way behind the clock uh, when it comes to setting up a settlement and getting themselves prepared for the winter. Um, you know, so the Speedwell gets left out of the story constantly. And that's one of the things I wanted to write back into it, uh, you know, because you know, the idea of two ships, um, you know, not just one uh, as part of this journey is is something that, you know, uh, people forget and uh, needs to be put back into the story. And so you mentioned a little bit earlier about hearing teacher and students uh, receptions as you were creating the book and, and doing your research. I'm so curious to hear, you know, what has the reception been to your book since then? And and has the uh, the Wampanoag tribe also responded to the book? Yeah, so the reception has been great. Uh, you know, I, I can't complain at all. Um, you know, children absorb the material like you would not believe. They, they, they 
really enjoy, um, you know, even though it's a long book, it's 92 pages, okay, for, for second to, you know, to fourth to fifth grade, um, it is it is quite a long book, but even with that, um, students learn so much, they enjoy the feeling of learning. And so the reception amongst children, especially, um, in, in all the new information that is coming to them through this book, uh, and the digestible way that it's done, um, you know, is, is actually very positive. If I, you know, receive anything that's on the negative side, it tends to come from older generations. Um, and like I said, you know, the 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 attacking of the uh, the Plymouth spelling uh, is how it kind of began, um, you know, but sometimes uh, there's folks that that see, um, you know, uh, the way I kind of balance the perspectives with Wampanoags as actually an anti-English, uh, you know, attack, <laughs> you know, or anti-pilgrim attack. Um, because they, they they've kind of you know the older generation has settled on this story as the truth for so long, and I'm disrupting that, um, you know. But uh, when it comes to the Wampanoag tribe, um, I mean, like I said, this was the this was the group of people that I cared about the most uh, when it came to the acceptance of the book. And uh, I can say, you know, thankfully, especially, you know, with with Linda Coombs involvement in it, uh, the way the information, um, you know, uh, debunks so much of what they deal with in the modern day times uh, and have to answer, you know, the same questions over and over the way it, it goes after those things. Uh, it has been received very well. And so um, the Aquina Cultural Center on Aquina and Martha's Vineyard. Um, you know, sells the book as well as the Mashpee Museum. And so that to me is probably the greatest compliment I could get for the book is that Wampanoag people ex themselves accept it. And even um, James Beard Award winner, uh, Chef uh, Sherry Pocknett, who is Wampanoag herself, uh, keeps a copy of uh, If You Live During the Plymouth Thanksgiving at her restaurant so that, uh, you know, for free uh, for people to read as they're waiting for their meals. So um, the reception amongst Wampanoag people especially has been extremely positive, And that to me is the most gratifying. Well, I mean, that sounds so amazing. And I was going to say it's 92 pages, but it's got beautiful illustrations that help with the story. And so I think the, the two complement each other. So it doesn't feel like a very long book. Uh, you've been listening to Chris Newell, who's the author of the Scholastic Children's Book, If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us this morning and helping us understand the story better. And thank you. Love being here. And we love you being on here as well. And coming up, educators with the Mashin Pequok Tribal Nation and the Mohegan Tribe will join us. We'll hear how all of this is being reframed in Connecticut classrooms. Let us know if you have any questions about Thanksgiving and how it's being taught. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're digging into efforts to tell the full story of Thanksgiving. How is this unfolding in Connecticut classrooms? We had a chance to speak with Sam Tondro. She's a member of the Mohegan Tribe and the tribe's director of curriculum and instruction. She helped develop a trove of resources for educators alongside representatives from Connecticut's four other recognized tribes, plus the Connecticut State Department of Education. Let's take a listen. 
Our goal is really to provide educators with one background knowledge of who we are. So teaching them who our five tribes are, where we are, where our land is, what has happened to each of our tribes in the past and how we're thriving today. We are having conversations about indigenous identity and the need for change in curriculum, which is coming. But on top of that, I always want to make sure that when I leave a professional development session with students, I mean, with with educators, that they have practical understanding that can be brought into the classroom right away. Because our goal is to support our educators to then support our students. So our five tribes have been collaborating on PD, on creating narratives of our tribes. Um, All five tribes right now, it actually went live last week on the CSDE website. Each of the five tribes put a narrative of their tribal history for educators to access. And from here, we're also creating that commonalities narrative that we can provide to educators as well. What do we all have in common and what do we think is important that you should be bringing into the classroom? So we're continuously working on more ways and better ways to support our educators. And those tribally specific materials are linked at our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. And back with us to discuss, I was just joking earlier that he's no longer here, but Chris Newell is still with us. He's the co-founder and director of education, uh, Aquanauk Educational Initiative, and a member of the Pasquamquati tribe. He's also the author of the children's book, If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving. And also joining us now is Rebecca Gomez. She's the director of education and recreation at the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. Thank you so much, Becky, for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me here. Very excited. We are super excited, too. And you've been listening along uh, the conversation this hour. Would just love to get your thoughts to this conversation and and what was going through your mind as you're listening to what Chris had to say earlier. Absolutely. Um, it, it was so great to learn from Chris um, and all of the resources that he pulled on to create this book. Um, and also to hear him speak about the book. Uh, a lot resonates with me. The primary thing I'd say is that, first of all, I'm non-native um, and I'm also a relatively new uh, employee um, of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. I only started serving in capacity of Director of Education and Recreation about a year ago. Prior to that, I was a professional history curriculum developer for a large charter school network um, that is in Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York. And so the first thing I would say is that I wish that this book had been published when I was a curriculum director. I would have absolutely utilized it in classrooms because I think one of the primary challenges that teachers face nowadays is finding good resources to use in their classrooms in order to more accurately teach what could be considered hard history, but which is what's just generally a good uh, history with multiple perspectives. Um, So I wish that it was uh, available back then. Um, But a couple of things in particular I'd like to speak uh, to in response to are what Chris named about origin myths. Um, So much of what many of us were taught when we were students in classrooms are just based on these myths that, uh, you know, have been perpetuated throughout time. And so in particular, I love that Chris Um, you know, confronts this doctrine of discovery idea uh, and also just breaks down some of the language that can be very damaging that teachers might use, like the fact that 
or not the fact, they teach it as a fact oftentimes, um, not not uh, intentionally, but it's just the way we were taught, that America was discovered um, when in fact there had been people living here for thousands of years. Uh, he also addressed that myth of the pristine wilderness that, you know, uh, Europeans came over and there was this blank landscape for them to, you know, cultivate and um, use the land as they wished. When again, in reality, there were thousands of people living here uh, over the course of many, many thousands of years. And so I appreciate that he named that. Um, I love that he also named that when he was an educator here at the Pequot Museum, that not only children were surprised by what he was sharing with them, but teachers were as well. Um, and I want to encourage any teachers, any educators who are listening to really take a step back and think about what you heard from Chris and, and hopefully engage in reading this book. Because I even see nowadays teachers with the best of intentions um, engaging in some practices which can be very damaging, obviously not intentional. I've seen pictures on social media of schools that I currently work with where, you know, in terms of Thanksgiving, worksheets using inappropriate clip art, cartoons of indigenous peoples, um, also art projects. You know, you see the construction paper headdresses and costumes in the classroom, which are just wildly inappropriate, although, you know, well-intended, just not appropriate. And Chris named this multiple times and Sam and I have multiple discussions about this and it's a big part of what we're working on with the curriculum, making sure that sources um, that best represent the perspectives of people who are not fully <laughs> European um, are, are used in the classroom. And I wanna name that that can be challenging. And I wanna offer that um, a big piece of the curriculum that we're putting out there is the importance of oral traditions. We talk about in history education, primary versus secondary sources. And I wanna push um, society to really think about you know, what exactly is a primary source? Because what's often used in a classroom uh, is something that's been written down and indigenous peoples traditionally have valued oral traditions. Um, and, and I really wanna have us think about uh, the value of oral traditions and that just because a story wasn't written down 400 years ago, um, that that perspective uh, is just as valuable. And especially given with everything that you just said, it really paints a picture of how how complicated this this process has been. And as we continue to sort of break this down, we'll love to get your thoughts about the importance of centering Native voices and local material and how kind of overdue this collaboration with the state was. Yeah, absolutely. Long, long overdue. And I want to name, I'm so grateful that the state of Connecticut is taking this initiative. And I think there's a lot more work that we can do, um, you know, representatives and members of the five tribes working with the state. Um, first and foremost, it's important for everyone to know that, as Chris named, the uh, Indigenous people are still here today. Um, the best resource that any educator or anyone who would like to know more about true history um, can do, they can go to indigenous peoples themselves. We have the Pequot Museum here, the Mohegan Habitat Aquidja Museum. There are other institutions across the state of Connecticut um, that can help to provide a more balanced perspective on what these histories are. And we heard from Sam Tondro with the Mohegan tribe who had a suggestion for educators about understanding the differences between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation. Uh, let's take a quick listen here. So when teaching about Thanksgiving in the classroom, I try to advise that teachers not do the typical let's dress up as one culture or the other because Native American regalia is sacred and it's purposeful to cultural events and ceremony. So to dress up in Native American garb and pretending you are a person is um, what I call cultural appropriation. And that is a topic that I talk about when I hold professional development sessions um, and I help people learn about cultural appreciation. 
because our goal is to learn about the people, learn about the history, the culture, and how Native communities are still thriving today. So if we can engage more in Native peoples, who they are, how they're succeeding today, I think we can have more learning opportunities than just looking at some of the narratives of what Thanksgiving may have been in the past. And again, Sam encouraged reaching out directly to the tribes that you're spotlighting in the classroom. Uh, the Mohegan Tribe has outreach programs for that exact purpose. And again, there's a link to our on our website to the set of materials just published by the State Department of Education, which was developed by each of Connecticut's five recognized tribes. That's at ctpublic.org slash where we live. And so, Becky, just a quick response from you with what Sam just said with me um, and I appreciate all of my conversations with Sam that is very much in line with what we've discussed. One more thing I'd add is it's important to reach out to all five of those tribes that are recognized and those aren't the only five tribes in Connecticut. Reach out to a broad variety of indigenous peoples because although there is um, much of a shared uh, culture and past, there's also different perspectives. Indigenous peoples are not a monolith. So it's important to speak to some members of the Scattergoat tribe, to, to speak to Mohican, to speak to Golden Hill Pagusset, to speak to Mashantucket, to speak to Eastern Pequot, um, et cetera, because uh, Indigenous people are not a monolith. Get different perspectives. History is messy. It's also beautiful. It's important to, to consider all different perspectives. So we want to end with one more clip from San Tondro with the Mohican tribe. Here was her response to the question of how those who celebrate Thanksgiving can rethink the holiday. In my tribal community, I am taught by my elders to be thankful each morning as I greet the sun and the new day. I am taught to be thankful for each new moon because every month provides us with bounty, which is so much to be thankful for. But I and my community, we also celebrate times of harvest multiple times a year. So the community, everybody can actually join us each August as we host our annual wigwam festival or Green Corn Festival to celebrate that. So all of these teachings of being thankful happen throughout the year. And for me, not just on that one holiday day of the year. So Chris, love to bring you back to conversation really quickly. We've got about a minute left here, but we'd love your response to what Sam just had to say. Um, yeah, she, she hits on something that I hit on in the book in that the modern day uh, Thanksgiving feast that we have as a harvest feast is actually much more resemblant of native traditions of, uh, you know, giving thanks for, uh, and once again, every moon, basically every moon, there's something um, new being harvested, whether it's the river herring, um, you know, in April, whether it's strawberries in June, uh, corn in August, uh, that, um, you know, uh, that are being thankful, that celebrated with a harvest, uh, and then a feast. So uh, the modern day Thanksgiving uh, feast that we celebrate today is actually much more resemblant of native Thanksgivings, not English Thanksgivings. And, and she hits on that very well. You've been listening to Chris Newell, who's the author of the children's book, If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving. Thank you for real now this time, Chris, for being with us this morning. Thank you. Absolutely. I love being here. And also for Rebecca Gomez, who's the Director of Education and Recreation at the Mash and Pequot Tribal Nation. Really appreciate your time today as well. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. 
We also heard from Sam Tondro, who's a director of curriculum and instruction at the Mohegan Tribe. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you.